are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. I introduce you Naboth. Naboth lived in a little town of Jezreel. He was a good man. He hated that which is wrong. He loved that which is right. This good man had a little vineyard which was close by a palace of the king. This vineyard came to him as a cherished inheritance from his forefathers, and because of this, all of it was very dear to his heart. I introduced you Ahab, the vile human toad, who squatted on the throne of the nation. He had command of a nation's wealth and a nation's army, but no command of his lusts and appetites. He wore fine clothes, but had underneath these clothes a wicked heart. He ate good food, but he had a starved soul. He lived in palaces, yet he tormented himself for one little bit of land more. He was a king with a crown, a throne, a scepter, a great army, and a full treasury. Yet he lived nearly all of his life under the thumb of a wicked woman. The Bible says this to us about him. It was not like unto Ahab the son of Amri, who sold himself to wake wickedness in the sight of the Lord, and he did abominably in falling out the idolaters of the Amorites. I introduced you Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Tyre, the wife of Ahab, king of Israel, a king's daughter, a king's wife. Daring and reckless was she in her wickedness. She was a devout worshiper of Baal and hated folks who did not worship a pagan god. She had all the beauty and all the brazen lewdness of a Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, all the subtle scheming of a lady Macbeth, all the cruelty of a Catholic of Russia, and she and her maidens engaged in lust worship unto Ashtoreth and scenes the most forbidding obscenities. She was a beautiful heir called upon the throne of the nation. I introduce you Elijah, God's preacher. He wore rough clothes, but had underneath these clothes a righteous and courageous heart. He ate birds, food, and widows fair, but was a great physical and spiritual athlete. It was God's strong wall that stood out against the rising tide to the wickedness of his day. He was a seer who saw clearly, a great heart who felt deeply, a hero who died valiantly, and God took him home to heaven without the touch of the death dew upon his brow. And with the introduction of these four characters, Naboth the devout Jezreelite, Ahab the vile human toad who occupied the throne, and Jezebel the beautiful adder coiled beside the toad, and Elijah, God's great preacher. I bring you as best I can tonight with the help of your prayer, please. The tragedy of payday someday is refined in God's blessed word. In the first scene in this tragedy, the real estate request, Ahab said unto Naboth, Let me have thy vineyard for a garden of herbs, because it is close to my palace. I will give this worth in money, or if it please thee, I'll give thee a better vineyard. Thus far Ahab is perfectly within his rights. He had no intention of cheating Naphoth out of his vineyard, of killing him to get it. Honestly, did he offer him its worth in money or a better vineyard? And under ordinary circumstances, we might expect Naboth to put away in a sentimental attachment which he had for his vineyard, he might please the king. But Ahab forgot, if he'd ever known it, God's commandment, whereby every tribe received its inheritance and every family's lot from God with this commandment, the land shall not be sold forever. The land is mine. 
saith the Lord. So, standing upon the commandment of God, and with true-hearted loyalty to God, and preferring the duty which he owed to God to any danger which might come from man, Naboth said, God forbid it me that I should let thee have my vineyard. He believed that he held that land in fee simple from God. Besides this, memories of his boyhood days were tangled in those vines. His father asleep now in some obscure grave had worked that vineyard. His mother asleep in some dust-stained shroud had loved that vineyard. Whenever he thought of his little vineyard so sanctified by sweet and holy memories, so rich in prayer and fellowship, come in the hands of Ahab and Jezebel, his soul rose in quick and righteous revulsion, and with the courage of a bird that dares a stormy sea, he said, God forbid it me that I should let thee have my vineyard. The second scene is the pouting king. Naboth's refusal to sell or to swap took all the spokes out of the wheels of Ahab's desire. His refusal was a strong barrier against which the stream of Ahab's desire dashed and was turned into a sullen pool of soaks. They were angry. He went to his house, went to bed, and would not eat. Look at the king lying there, in bed, whining like a whipped hound, pouting like a spoiled child that had been denied one trinket in the midst of a thousand toys. When his servants brought in food, he drove them from his presence as though they had carried in garbage. What an ancient and even a grotesque portrait we have here of great ability and personality that turned over to the devil and withheld from God. Has the commander-in-chief of an army made captive by corporal mopishness. General Ahab made prisoner by private pouts. Yes, look at this whale, watering spout about because he denied men of food. Listen to this eagle shriek because he denied the crumbs that sparrows eat. Listen to this lion roar for a little bit of cheese and get the ancient part of the great personality and talents prostituted to the service of the devil and withheld from the service of God. You get duplicates of that portal today when you look around us. We have men and women today who have diamond ruby abilities who are worth no more to God through his churches than a punctured Japanese nickel in a Chinese bazaar. <laughs> men and women incandescent light power make no more light for Christ than a smoky lantern on a stormy night. Men and women with pipe organ ability to make no more music for Christ than a wheezer saxophone in an idiot's hands. <laughs> Men and women with, with steam shovel talents doing teaspoon work for God. Yes, listen to this overfed bull. Bellow for a little bit of grass outside his own vast pasture lands. And get a duplicate of that portrait of men and women today who withhold our love, our trust, their sacrifices, their service, and their bodies from Christ Jesus who bore our sins in his own body on the cross. The third scene is the wicked wife, Jezebel. We do not know all that the servants said to her when they made known to her that the king was lying in bed and wouldn't eat. We do not know anything which she said to the servants, but we do know something which she said to Ahab when tripping me like a gay dancer. She ran in the king's room, found him lying there in bed with his mouth swollen with muley smoping. His eyes burning with cheap anger fire, and his heart stubborn and disobedient to what he knew was the commandment of God. And as is a custom with women, even until this day, I suppose she put her hand on his forehead to see if he had temperature. <laughs> he had temperature, he was set on foul hell. At first, in a voice of sweet solicitation, she sought the reason of his anger, and in my inelegant translation of her words, she said, What's the matter with you, big boy? Why, I, 
Why is our face so sad and why does thou not eat? Rahab said grouchily, oh, well, I said to Ahab, I said to Naboth, let me have thy vineyard for a garden of wood because it's close for my palace and I will give this worth in money or if it please thee, I'll give thee a better vineyard. And he said to me, I will not let thee have my vineyard. And every word he said stung like a whip upon a naked back, this wicked woman who never had any regard for the welfare of anybody who loved God. You could hear a devilish laugh ring throughout the palace halls like the cackle of a wild fowl that has returned and found a serpent in its nest. With a sharp tongue she began to prod her husband, this gay, gaudy guinea of the devil, strutted up and down beside the king's couch and derided him as a buffoon and as a coward. The horny like sting and seven mouse hiss in the teasing taunts she heard at him for his scrupulous timidity. Then with more noise and wisdom in her words, she said, Aren't you the king? Can you not command and have it done? Arise, eat, be happy. I'll get thee, neighbor's vineyard. Ahab knew her well enough to know she'd do her wicked worst to keep her evil promise. So, like an old turtle has been asleep in the cold winter mud and the sunshine warms the mud, he began slowly to crawl out of the slime of his sucks. Jezebel, no doubt, tickled him on the chin with her bejeweled finger and said, That's right, now laugh, now eat, now be happy. I'm going to get thee, neighbor's vineyard. Which brings us to ask this question. Who can so degrade a man as a woman of unworthy purposes? And who can so elevate a man as a woman of noble purposes? But back to the statement that was done like unto Ahab the son of Amri who sold himself to wake wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Back to the statement that he did wickedly in falling after the, the idolaters of his day is this statement whom Jezebel his wife stood up. She was a polluted reservoir at which the streams of his own iniquity found might increase. She's a devil's grindstone on which he sharpened his wicked weapons. Yes, who can so degrade a man? The woman of unworthy purposes. Read this blessed word all you will, set the pages of history all you please, and you'll find one truth that stands out above many other truths, and that is that the spiritual life of no nation, no city, no town, no community, no home, no school, no church ever rises any higher than the spiritual life of women. And women sag morally and spiritually, men sag morally and spiritually. That's the teaching of this word, that's the teaching of thousands of pages of history. Who was it that made the papers in its most shameful days? Lucretia Borgia, a woman. Who was it breathed fury through Robespierre in those awful days in Paris when the guillotine chopped off the heads of many? It was a woman. Who was it really ordered the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day when a hundred thousand Protestants were butchered within sixty hours? Catherine Medici, a woman. Who was it tried to ruin Joseph, whom God put in Egypt to take famine fear from the heart of the nation? It was a woman. Yes, part of his wife with a dirty proposal and a lying tongue. Who was it called Samson? After he had been judged in Israel for 20 years to have his eyes gouged out. The grind is a blind donkey at the mills of the enemies of God. A woman, Delilah. Who was it told Job in the midst of his physical affliction and financial calamity to curse God and commit suicide? A woman, his own wife. Who was it suggested to Haman that the bill of Gallus, 75 feet high, on which to hang Mordecai the Jew, was a woman, Zeris, his own wife, who was it danced King Herod completely into hell, a woman, Herodias, who was it like a heavy chain around the neck of Governor Felix, for life and death and time and eternity, a woman, Drusilla, who was it ruined Charles Stuart Parnell in the good days of Queen Victoria, when he almost achieved home rule for Ireland, Kitty O'Shea, a woman, 
On and on I might go endlessly showing you this truth. Some of the foulest plots that have ever been hatched out of the devil's incubators have been hatched out of them by eggs placed in these incubators by women's hands. But while that is true, it is also gloriously true that some of the most beautiful and spiritually fragrant flowers that blossom in God's kingdom gardens, some of the most luscious spiritual fruit that ripens in God's kingdom orchards, some of the most potent streams that flow out from fountains of truth to make garden places out of desert places of the world are realities because of woman's chastity, love, service, sacrifice, and faith. But as for Ahab, this book tells us was Jezebel who stirred him up, stirred him up to greater wickedness than his own wicked mind could conceive or his own wicked hand could execute. The next scene is a message meaning murder. Jezebel got some paper and a pen and wrote this. Listen to it. To the elders and nobles of Jezreel, proclaim a fast. Set Naboth on high among the people. Have two men, sons of Belial, placed before him. Have them rise and say, Naboth blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. And she signed Ahab's name to that death warrant. And surely since writing has been known to man, no foul plot was ever written by a woman's hand. Every drop of ink she used was fatal poison to be injected into Naboth's veins. Every line she wrote was a little rope, which united with other little ropes made a noose for Naboth's neck. And she put that death warrant in what we call the envelope today. And then she melted some wax at the mouth of a hot candle. And that wax had fallen warm and soft upon the envelope in which was the death warrant. She asked Ahab for his ring, on which was the seal of the nation. He gave her his ring, and she sealed it with the king's seal. And back of that seal was all the authority of the throne. And she gave that message, which meant murder, to the royal courage and told him to take it down, deliver it to the elders and the nobles, the mayor and the aldermen of Jezreel. Now let's notice that death warrant a bit more closely. She said, proclaim a fast. Well, she didn't know, did she know that every Jewish heart would desire to participate in that fast? Because a proclamation of a fast was a declaration, in other words, that somebody in the community had done some evil deed which was about to bring punishment from God upon the community. The purpose of the fast would be to seek this man out, give him the punishment he deserves so that punishment from God would not come upon the people. And she said, set Naboth on high among the people. That did not mean to put him in any seat of honor. Then in our courthouse language today, to put him in the prisoner's dock before the bar of justice. He said, have two men, sons of Belial, placed before him. These sons of Belial were as base as men could ever become. They seemed to have been nursed on the tiger milk of crude, and they would have sold our mothers into slavery for just a few shekels. And she said, have them rise and say, Naboth, blaspheme God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. And her purpose was to put Naboth out of the way by judicial murder rather than by private assassination. I do not know where Naboth was when that death warrant arrived in his little town. Maybe he and his little sons are playing a game. Maybe he's working in his vineyard right near the palace. Maybe he and his wife have gone for a love stroll. I do not know, but I do know this, that that night when Naboth ate supper with his family, that night when he slept with the wife of his bosom, he did not know that the hounds of death let loose from the kennels of hell by the bejeweled hands of a king's daughter and a king's wife were close upon his heels, ready to take his life. I can hear Naboth make his indignantly righteous protest when these men came down and made known to him about the festival and he would sit in the seat of the accused on high among the people. 
But of course, all, of course, all the protests he made avail nothing. That brings us to this scene, the fatal fast. The proclamation went out. People gathered by the thousands, little children by the hundreds running here and there in their gay clothes, laughing and playing. Young men and young women, not knowing the evil portent of the day, glad for the day, because it gave them the chance to get together and speak the love of their hearts to each other. But the older folks had the fears of their hearts written in the seriousness of their faces and sounding forth in the solemnity of the tones of their conversation because they trusted not Ahab and Jezebel when it came to anything like a religious observance in the name of Jehovah God. But they're there. After a while, these bloody butchers of the queen bring in this good man, put him in the seat of the accused on high among the people where every eye could watch him on the suspicion and accusation he had done the evil thing which was about to bring punishment from God upon the community. Uh, he's sitting there. After a while, in came these two base sons of Belial. Took position pretty close to him. There they are, the devil's hawks. Ready to put their beaks into God's sparrow. The devil's eagle ready to thrust their talons into God's dove. The devil's robo wolves ready to tear to shreds. God's noble stag. A little bit these two base men cried aloud, Naboth blaspheme God! Naboth blaspheme a king! And strong hands jerked him out of the sea of the queue, dragged him out through the throngs of people, while little children shrieked and women screamed and strong men stood horrified at what they knew was going to be done, which awful thing they will help us to prevent. But these bloody butchers of a bloody queen dragged this good man out from among the folks, out along the street, out through the gate to the town, threw his body down upon the ground, picked up the stones they had gathered beforehand for his kidding and threw them at him and threw them at him and threw them and threw them at him and threw them at him until his feet and legs were broken all to pieces. His head was crushed like an egg beneath a giant's heel. His, his hands and arms all shattered. His chest was all crushed in and bones stuck out from his body like ivory fingers from pots of red paint, blood spattered, brains scattered, and with convulsive jerks of his body and groans coming from between his broken jaws, Naboth became very still. He did. God's lily been to earth by the hailstones of hell. Then these bloody butchers said, Now, that his sons may not inherit the vineyard, let's kill them while we're at it. Maybe they're the same fellows who'd been cutting off the heads of God's preachers in those days when Obadiah, who feared God in Ahab's house, took a hundred young preachers, hid them in a cave and sneaked bread and water to them so they wouldn't starve to death. Anyway, they have gone beyond the bloody orders of their bloody queen, killing not only Naboth but his sons. And they sent word back to whom? To Ahab? No, to Jezebel. Naboth is stoned and is dead. I do not know where she was when she got that news. Maybe she's out on the palace lawns watching the fountains splash. Maybe she's out yonder in the rose garden watching the royal gardener cut bouquets through the palace rooms. Maybe she's down on the in the music hall, listen to King's orchestra play. I do not know, but I do know this. When she got the news of Naboth's death, she received with jubilant joy. She received with devilish delight and went running to tell Ahab the good news. What did it matter to her that down yonder some miles away sat a little woman, freshly wooded? What did it matter to her that there was a little mother down there washing the face of a dead son with the tears? But did it matter to her that murder had been done, that God had been defied? Just so she and her husband had a little vineyard for a garden of herbs close by their summer palace. 
So she ran into where Ahab was, and every relation, she said, Arise, arise, get thee down to Jezreel and take possession. I told you I would get you Naboth's vineyard, and I got it. And I got for nothing what you're going to give good money for. I got for nothing what you're going to give a better vineyard for. Arise, get thee down to Jezreel and take possession. Naboth is not alive. Naboth is dead. That last statement was true because of the wicked plot conceived in her own mind and written out with a little white bejeweled queen's hand. That brings us to this scene, the visit to the vineyard. Ahab arose, gave orders to his royal wardrobe keeper to get out his king's clothes, a little business trip to make to see some new property his queen had acquired for him, and he wanted to dress up for the occasion. While Ahab had, had no direct part in the killing of Naboth, he was perfectly willing to receive the benefit of his dying. He had not one word of rebuke or censure for that tragic plot that had culminated in such a murderous horror. So he gave orders out to the luxurious livery stables to Jehu and Bidkar to put the bridles and harness on the king's horses, hitch them up to the king's chariot, tell the outriders to put on their gorgeous garments and saddle their horses, give them a cavalcade and take them down to Jezreel. Now Jehu was a speed-breaking driver his day. When people heard chariot wheels whirling faster along the roadways than other chariot wheels, or heard horses galloping faster than the other horses, they said, That's old Jehu. He driveth furiously. We must have a lot of kin folks in America. <laughs> but out from these luxurious livery stables came this, these horses hitched to the king's resplendent royal chariot, out riding red gorgeous garments, now saddled horses. This cowboy came out, coming up that gorgeous ivory palace. Look at those horses in the king's chariot. Their ears are moving, their eyes are bright and alert. There's a prance in that step that testifies that their muscles, their hearts, and their lungs are ready for any pace that Master Jesus shall demand by word or by whip that they take. This cavalcade came driving up that gorgeous ivory palace in Samaria, the ruins of which I have walked over, the ruins of which I have taken pictures of. Out from the solid ivory doors of that ivory palace, down the solid ivory steps of that ivory palace, Came King Ahab, maybe Jezebel standing up there in the ivory doorway, waving over a jeweled hand at him or blowing him a kiss. And these ivory, these marble steps that came, these ivory steps. Bidcar opened the chariot door. The king stepped in. Bidcar stepped in with him, sort of a valet, closed the chariot door. The outriders are ready now. Jehu with his horses are ready. The authoritative command, he sent this cavalcade away. They go away, away from that gorgeous ivory palace, out through the gates to the king's estate, on down the highway to Jezreel. Where is God? Where is God? Is it blind that he cannot see? Is it deaf that he cannot hear? Is it dumb that he cannot speak? Is it paralyzed and he cannot move? Where is God? Oh, wait a minute, we should find out. Oh, here in the palace, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, get thee down to Jezreel and take possession. Oh, we are in the wilderness where he heard no human voice at all. Only the hooting owls and the howling wolves of the night time, the cackle of the killdee, the raucous call of the crows in the daytime. Was Elijah? Out there where so many times when the moon blossomed yonder like a yellow jungle in the garden of ancient stars, he stood and worshipped his God. Out there, God said, Elijah, arise, 
Get thee down to Jezreel where Ahab is gone and tell him this for me. Dear friends, tonight, this is land of ours where we have never been so in danger of handing down our blood bequeathed legacy reduced in quality and in quantity. In this world where people loose their wild tongues that hold not God and all. In this earth where, as Winston Churchill said before he died, the human race had reached the point of no return. I'm so glad that when the devil has his Ahab to whom he can say arise, God Almighty has his Elijah to whom he can say arise. And so while Ahab, driven by the king's charity, rode to Jezreel down the dusty highways barefooted, walked God's preacher to Jezreel. That brings to this scene the alarming appearance. Jehu drove these horses furiously. The outriders, when they got right near the gate to Naboth's right in the shadow of the palace, these outriders lined up in something like military formation. Did Carr told his horses to stop. They pranced around a little bit, stretched their necks. Look at these wonderful horses. See the form of their sweat around the rim of their harness? See the marks of Jehu's whip upon their sweaty flanks? But their great lungs are breathing like a tireless bellus. Well, if they stood the furious pace that their master Jehu demanded by word and by whip that they take. Did Carr open a chariot door? Ahab stepped out into the vineyard. His vineyard now, the gift of his queen. Then the soft soil, Naboth's footprints. No doubt the smaller prints of his wife and the still smaller prints of his little sons. There the rows of vines missing in the sunlight, maybe rustling in a quiet breeze. With maybe glancing up at his palace, the king walked in planning how he's going to have all these vines pulled up. Going to plant herbs and grow herbs. And, and when the herbs are grown, they'll be cooked up there in a... In the, in the kitchen and be served in the chandelier dining room. As he walks among these vines, planting out all out, what is it appears? Is it some green-eyed tiger fixing a pit, pounce upon him and kill him? No, no green-eyed tiger. Some fierce eagle stooping from the sky with extended talons threatening to pull his eyes from their sockets? No, no fierce eagle. Somebody going along the coast by roadway announcing some alien army has entered the land? No, it's no alarm of war. What is it then? He walks among these vines, suddenly the shadow falls in front of him, and he words on his heels and finds himself face to face with Elijah, our preacher of the living God. And he cowed in his presence. His face turned pale. Voice is hoarse, like that of a hunted animal. Looking up at the preacher, he said, Hast thou found me, O oh, mine enemy? Hast thou found me? Old Elijah standing there, that old sheepskin man across his sun-kissed shoulders. The leather girdle around his loins. A staff in his hand, no doubt. His eyes burning like coals of fire in their sockets. His voices are calm as an inland lake, never touched by a breeze. Looked down upon the cowardly cowering king and said, Ahab. Hast thou killed and taken possession? Ahab is the Lord God lives before whom I stand. God sent me here to tell you that someday the dogs will lick your blood. God sent me here to tell you that someday the dogs will eat Jezebel here by the ramparts of Jezreel. Having pronounced God's judgment sentence upon the guilty too, God's preacher walked out through the vines, out through the gate, out by Jehu and Bidcon, outriders whose eyes were wide with amazement. 
whose ears were tingling with God's judgment sentences. They had heard it passed upon our king and upon our queen. But sentence upon our king was that someday the dogs would lick his blood. But sentence upon our queen was that someday the dogs would eat her. God said it. Did he mean it? Was he joking? Was he playing a prank on royalty? We get an answer to that in this last scene, payday itself. Did payday come like God said, listen there, friends, tonight. Payday someday, written in the constitution of God's universe by God himself, for every nation, every individual that goes opposite the direction of what God points. Payday someday in the constitution of God's universe for every nation and every individual that gives God a no one God asks for a yes. For every nation, every individual says no to Jesus who said yes to the cross. Payday someday in the constitution of God's universe. No legislature man can enact it out. No educational system can teach it out. No scientific power can pull it out. No nuclear bomb can blast it out. No infidelity can, can revile it out. No atheism can laugh it out. Payday someday, God says. Well, you can take God's name in vain if you're indecent enough to be a profane swearer. But this book tells us what the cussest payday will be. God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You can tell lies if you wish by living but life like thousands of people are doing today. But this book tells us what the last payday is. Listen. All liars shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. You can drink your rotten booze if you will. And go home and not know the keyhole of the door from the mouth of Mammoth's cave. <laughs> or the railroad track from a clothesline. But this book tells us about the boozer's payday. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever to see thereby as a fool, at last it biteth like a silver and stingeth like an adder. I hate booze. If I had one hand, my head's in favor of it anyway, any time for anything, I'd pull it out. Have my big toe wiggle like it's going to legalize lick, I'm going to chop it off. Yes, I am. Booze is bad. How bad? As bad as poison and sewage in the, in the drinking fountain. How bad? As bad as strychnine in the baby's milk bottle. How bad? As bad as poison ivy for bride's bouquet. How bad? As bad as a mad dog in a children's playground. As bad as a rattlesnake in the kindergarten. As bad as a rapist in a girl's dormitory. As bad as a maniac wheeling a raise in old folks' home. It's of hell. And God hates it. And I think much of the trouble we're having within our own border and with other nations who hate us and to whom our misfortune would be honeycomb is because of our defiance and disobedience of God as to what he said. Woe unto him who offers the bottle to his neighbor and maketh him drunk. God said it. Woe. God said it. And you can live to flesh and sex if you will in this day when there's such an obsession as to sex in this day of the unbid, unmitigated villainy of multitudes of men and the unblushing vulgarity of multitudes of women. You can live to flesh and sex. Now sex is of God. And it's legitimate and right use. It's a, it's a means of joy and blessing and life. But out of its, out of its place 
It's an abomination which pleases the devil and an abomination which displeases God. The works of the flesh are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. But what's the payday? He that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption, rotten flesh, carrion which buzzeth love. This word of God says, He that rolleth a stone upon another, that stone will return upon him. And when it returns, it will return with increased weight and crushing power. This word says, He that soweth the wind shall reap the whirlwind. This word says, He that diggeth a ditch for another, whether the digger be a nation or an individual, shall fall in the ditch he digs and find that ditch his grave. God said it, and it's so. The wicked shall be turned into hell with all the nations that forget God. God said it, and it shall be. I was past the First Baptist Church in New Orleans for some blessed years. Had a little radio station all my own. Had a federal license to operate. Everything I said at church went out over that little station. I got many letters. I got letters from a young man who signed himself the chief of the kangaroo court. But cruel, caustic, mean... Letters he did write me. One day a little nurse down to Charity Hospital in New Orleans phoned me and she said, Dr. Lee, I know you're busy. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm always busy. I even work my toes when I sleep. <laughs> but I noticed there wasn't any levity in her voice or no joking in her tones. She said, Dr. Lee, this young, young man down here won't tell us his name. All he'll tell us is that he's the chief of the kangaroo court and he's going to die. I want you to come down because you're the only preacher in New Orleans he ever heard. He said, yeah, something he wanted to tell you. Will you come? Of course I went. The little nurse took me in that great big chair ward, great big ward, man on every bed in it. She took me up to one bed on which was stretched a young fellow about six feet tall, 18 to 20 years of age, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And she said, this, sir, is the chief of the kangaroo court. I found myself looking down into the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. As kind as I knew how to talk, I said, How'd it do? How'd you? He snarled at me. And as kind as I could talk again, I said, Is there anything I can do for you? No, nothing, nothing, nothing. Unless you throw my body out to the buzzards when I'm dead, if the buzzards have it. His voice lost much of its snarl. Looking up at me, those wild, weird, beautiful eyes, they said, I sent for you, sir, because I'm the chief of the kangaroo court. I want you to tell these men in here something. I sent for you because I know you go down the country and talk to a lot of young people. I want you to tell them that the devil always pays in counterfeit money. I wish I could get everybody in this, this house of God tonight to believe that. The devil always pays in counterfeit money. All his pearls are paste pearls. All his diamonds are lustrous plastic. You drink his nectar, it'll turn out to be hog slop. If you eat his corn, he'll choke you with his cob. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. But what preacher has the power to get an American congregation to believe the truth I'm preaching tonight? Sometimes people listen to this message. Go that way. 
as though I'd recited a mother goose rhyme or been some clown at some circus performing a, an antic. Don't treat me like that tonight. I stayed with that young man like I've stayed with many people in the 66 years I've been a preacher in their dying hours. His body had a peculiar jacket it took on after I'd been there. I stayed with him over two hours and all. About a half an hour, his body began about every minute to have a peculiar jacket and jump like that. And the eyes began, like, began to look like glass marble and he kept gazing up the ceiling. He kept gazing, just gazing, just gazing. Gazing as though he were looking for some rescue hand that would reach down and pull him out of the pit, the horrible pit and the miry clay that sins to dig for him. I stayed with him two hours. About the end of two hours, his body gave an old peculiar lurch. Out of his mouth spouted a great big pile of old foul black stuff. Some of it got on my sleeve of my coat and on, on my hand. I was holding his hand when he died. I put it down. The tornado had died, the whisper, and the whisper had died. The little nurse saw me put his hand down. She came in excitement. Oh, come here quickly. Come here quickly. I said, what do you want, my child? I want to wash your hand. It's dangerous to touch him. She took me back in the room, washed my hands with some sort of liquid. She seemed to be talking to herself as much as she was to me. Dangerous to touch him. Just a touch is danger. The devil had paid him off. And counterfeit money. No wonder Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote this voice which I'm going to give you. And this voice which I'm going to quote from the great poet is the biography of some young men and young women in Memphis, Tennessee, whose names and addresses I could give if I were mean enough. This is it. This is the price I pay. Just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief and sorrow without relief. Suffered I will, my friend. Suffer it until the end, until the grave shall give me relief. Small was the thing I bought, small was the thing at best. Small was the debt, I thought, but oh God, the interest, the interest. Young woman from Memphis State University visited me while I was still pastor. Sitting in a chair with agony on her face, she said, Dr. Lee, my father died when I was just a young girl. Now I've come to the place where I need to talk to some man whom I can trust, and I trust you. May I talk? I said, yes, dear, go ahead. Everything you say I'll treat very sacredly. Then verbally she began to unfold some of the pages of her life's book. Sordid pages, sorrowful pages. And then she stopped, seemed to be sickening of her own recital, the treasures of her life. She said, oh, Dr. Lee, if I had a million dollars in my lap, I'd give it away as quick as I could drop the floor. If I could call back just two hours of my life, but I can't, can I? I said, no, dear, no river ever turns around and runs to its source. Young man in Memphis wouldn't sit down. When his father died, he inherited all the wealth that his father had, and there was much of it. He looked over at me as I sat in my office, and he said, Preacher, you don't have to preach to me that there's a, such a thing as hell. That I know you've been preaching to hell afterlife for folks who do, do the right thing with Jesus. He said, but I know there's a hell in life and on earth because I've been walking up and down avenues of hell for 11 months. He said, I'd give all that my father left me if I could call back just two days and two nights of my life, but I can't. 
I said, no, son, nobody can put an egg back after you step on it. This is the price I pay just for one riotous day. Young people, listen to me tonight. Please, don't ever yield your body to anybody for any purpose. Don't ever make any decision. Don't ever take any stand and cause you to have to say someday, this is the price I paid just for one riotous hour, one riotous day, years of regret and grief. Oh, please, please, please. I love Louisiana. I'll be preaching down in that state pretty soon. Jimmy Davis, who served eight years as governor of that state, was converted under my preaching, which I started with push to work with him. The Sunday night, a month ago, he and I occupied the pulpit at Bellevue. I preached, and before I preached, he gave his testimony and sang three sweet gospel songs. And down in Louisiana, we had a lovely young woman by the name of Tony Joe Henry. She had a lover, supposedly, but not a lover. She had a sweetheart, supposedly, but not a sweetheart. These supposed lovers spread out a long, luxuriant hand and say, Oh, Tony Joe, your hair's so gorgeous. No girl has hair as pretty as you, Tony Joe. One night in the dance hall, some old, tall, gawky guy, so much taller to see what he could look down in her eyes, and he pulled her up to him and said, Ooh, Tony Joe, you eyes sparkle like the stars, and you die so divinely. Like anybody could do the pomegranate parade or the watermelon wobble skunk ski daddle divinely. One night at one o'clock, midnight, an old dance hall floor down the street in New Orleans, old hiccup and drunk grabbed her and pulled her up close to him and said, Mmm, Tony Joe, mmm, mmm, where'd you get that perfume? And before she could answer, another old hiccup and drunk said, Yeah, Tony, where'd you get that stinker gay Paris? Oh, she had a lover supported, but not a lover. One day she killed a man who begged him not to kill her. She was arrested, tried, found guilty, sentenced to die in an electric chair. Some people who don't know much about God and might a little about the Bible, and who don't believe in capital punishment, went to our governor and asked him to pardon her. He said, I have no ground to pardon Tony Joe Henry. So one morning she's sitting on the edge of a cot in a cell a little cloth slippers on her bare feet, had on a demon skirt and waist, her face is in her hands. She's looking down at the cement floor, not a bit harder than her heart was when she killed a man who begged her not to kill him. An old bandana handkerchief tied around her head. I have a picture of her like that in my office on file. I used to wonder about that bandana till I talked to the man in Senate, Texas when I preached this sermon there three years ago who electrocuted Tony Joe. I said, why that bandana? He said, oh, Doc, she was so prissy about her hair. She didn't want it shaving off. And I said, well, Tony, if the prison barber doesn't shave your hair off, the electricity will burn it off. But I'll have the barber shave it off, and then I'll give you a bandana. You can hold your hair on your head with it when you come to the chair. Oh, what gruesome things sin brings to pass. Sin, which is an opening will, a frenzy, imagination, a madness in the brain, a poison in the heart, the wages of which is death. 
Well, she's sitting there, and there's a click in a lock, and a door opened, and two guards in uniform stood there. One of them said, it's time to go, Tony Joe. It's time to go. She rose, slowly, for her last walk on earth. As she goes between the two guards down the narrow hallway to the death room, Nobody now, Teresa danced divinely. Nobody now to talk about her gorgeous hair. It's all shaving off. Nobody now to talk about her new perfume. Where are all her lovers? Just stop there, it is. The horrible chair, grinning at her like a skeleton from the closet. Times Picayune report, wrote, reporter wrote this about it. I have what he wrote on the file in my office. Tony Joe Henry stopped, looked at the chair and said, Somehow I knew all along God ran the whole show, but I tried to steal just one little act. God nudged along. She sat down in the chair, the throne the devil had gotten ready for her. They pulled a little cross slippers off her bare feet, put the soles of her feet on the electrodes. Put the palms of her little hands on the electrodes, knobs on the arms of the chair. The carnation bracelets the devil had gotten ready. The executioner slipped the electrode over her shaven head. The crown the devil had gotten ready for her. They buckled her beautiful young body in with a heavy leather belt. The electrocutioner told me a whisper in that room had been as loud as a voice. He pushed the lever. The little bolts of electricity hit her. Beautiful young body, and it quivered, and it lunged, and it quivered, and twisted, and lunged, and the little old electric cords just kept on attacking her beautiful body, like the little imps of hell, laughing at a girl who'd cursed preachers, and laughed at the Bible, and cursed churches, and who heard the sermon to which you're listening tonight, and went her way, saying no to Jesus. One a thousand times I wished it that night when Tony Joe Henry loved a 16-year-old young woman had said yes to Jesus when she heard the sermon of which you're listening tonight. Payday someday. Well, somebody said, what about Ahab? Well, three years went by, still he's a king. He can command armies and wear fine clothes and all like that. Three years is a pretty long time to wait to get any pay for anything. So I think up there in the Chandelier dining room, Jezebel sarcastic poked some fun at him on a case that, here Ahab, help yourself these herbs. They all came out of Naboth's vineyard. I thought of Elijah said, the dogs are going to lick your blood. Ha, 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 ha. I thought he said they're going to eat me. Maybe they lost a trail. Maybe they died. But listen, I think in all those three years, old Ahab never heard a dog bark. He didn't jump. <laughs> One day he had a visitor, King Jehoshaphat of Judah. He gave him a banquet. He closed the banquet, he said to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, you're the king of Judah, I'm the king of Israel. Ramoth Gilead out here is ours, and we're taken out of the hands of the Syrians. Will you go out with me and have me take it out of their hands? Jehoshaphat, well fed and well entertained, said, Yeah, yeah, my horses shall be as thy horses, my soldiers as thy soldiers. And so it was. The battle plans were made, the battle day was set, and the king of Syria found it out. He called 30 of his most valiant men to him and he said, Now listen, fellas, when this battle comes on, don't you fight with the little, don't you fight with the great. You just get Ahab, that's all we want. On that day, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, I've disguised myself. 
I'm going into battle in disguise. I put arm over my naked body and I got just an ordinary citizen suit over my arm and nobody can recognize me. I'm going in in disguise and so it was. Battle came on shields, crashing arrows, flying spears, stone. Men fighting over here is a man. The Bible doesn't give us his name. Just tell us he drew a bow at a venture. I call him the nameless, aimless bowman. He shot that arrow out over the heads of the fighting forces. It found a crevice in Ahab's armor, punched a jagged hole through his body near his heart, and he fell over on the chariot rim, shrieking and jerking, Jehu, Jehu, oh, turn your hand, Jehu, and hold me up. I'm wounded. Uh, uh, on your hand, Jehu, I'm wounded. He died on the chariot rim. Before he breathed his last wicked breath, his wicked heart pumped the corrupt blood out of his body into the, body into the bottom of the chariot. The whole bottom of the chariot was filled with his blood, and before they could get it, the chariot of the pool of Samaria and wash the blood out, here came the dogs and leaped in the chariot and licked up his blood. According to the word of God spoken by Elijah that's teached by it, saying, Someday the dogs will lick thy blood. God said it, and it was done. Well, what about Jezebel? Twenty years went by, still she's a queen. She can command armies, sleep between silken seats and put her head on silken pillars, and servants obedient to her every beck and nod. A maiden can give her bears and camel's milk. Still the queen after twenty years. Twenty years a long time for preachers to preach without a convert, isn't it? Twenty years a long time for school teachers to teach school without any pay. Long time for for a farmer to work his field and never get a crop. Twenty years and still she's a queen. Old Elijah had gone home to heaven without dying. Wish I could go that way. <laughs> Succeeded by Elisha, marvelous man of God. One day Elisha called a young preacher to him. We'd call Elisha today the president of a seminary. He was head of the school of the prophets. And he called a young man to him, a young preacher, and he said, Here, my son, there's a little horn of anointing oil. You go down to Ramoth Gilead to a certain street to a certain house, and you walk in, and you'll find Jehu sitting among some of his folks, his soldiers. You call him into the room aside, and when you get in the room, shut the door, then you anoint him king of Israel and tell him his business is to blot out the whole house of Ahab, for the Lord has sworn that the dog shall eat Jezebel. The young man, guided, of course, by the Lord, Went down to Ramoth, get it, found the right street, the right house, and walked in and there, sitting Jehu amongst some soldiers. He said, I'd like to speak with thee, sir. And Jehu said, To which one of all of us? To thee, O captain. Jehu got up and followed the young man to the room aside and opened a little horn of oil and poured it on his head, maybe patted it in with his fingertips, and said in a voice of terrific solemnity and significance, I do hereby. By the word of the Lord, anoint thee king over Israel. The Lord has said that thy business as king is to blot out the whole house of Ahab, for the Lord has sworn that the dogs shall eat Jezebel. And then doing what the preacher told him to do, the young man opened the door and ran. And, and Jehu went back to his soldiers and they said, Is everything all right? What did that mad young fellow want? Jehu said, you know what he wanted. We don't. What did a man want? And Jehu said, I am the king of Israel. These men 
threw their garments down on the top of the stairway and shouted, Jehu is king! And Jehu said, come, we ride. Some horses were hitched to a chariot for some of them. Other horses were saddled for some of his cavalcade. That cavalcade started on that long drive down the valley of Israel and up and down which I've gone a half a dozen times. And at Jezreel was Jezebel and Jeremiah's son and Ahaziah, his uncle. The watchman on the tower saw the cavalcade coming. He called out to Joram, son of Ahab and Jezebel, Is there company coming? And Joram said, Send out a horseman. Ask him if his mission's peace. The horseman rode out, not knowing Jehu and not knowing it was Jehu, and shouted, Yes, I mission peace. And Jehu shouted back, Fall in, you and ride with my company. And the horseman did it. And the watchman on the tower called out to Joram and said, The horseman cometh not back. He ride with the approaching company. And Joram said, Send out a second horseman. Ask him his mission's peace. The second horseman rode out. Met Jehu and his cavalcade in the highway and shouted, Is thy mission peace? And Jehu shouted back, Fall in, you and ride with me. And the horseman did it. Watchman on the tower called out to Joram, said the second horseman cometh not back. He rides with the approaching company, the one who leads that company driveth furiously like Jehu, the son of Nimshai. And Joram said to his ah, we shall go meet Jehu. The servants hitched up some horses quickly to him, each one of them, for chariot, each one of them. They drove out through the gate. Met Jehu in the highway right near the walls of Jezreel. And Joram said, Jehu, is our mission peace? And Jehu, the new king, said, How can there be peace as long as your mother lives and her whoredoms and her witchcrafts exist? And Joram said to his eye, Treason, treason, and he pulled his horses around and put them up. He tried to get back inside the protective walls of Jezreel when he got right opposite Naboth's vineyard right in the side of the palace. Jehu had been a skillful bone for years, picked up a bow and arrow and shot an arrow through his body. Joram's body fell out of the chariot and the horses went on with the empty chariot. And Jehu drove up and stopped and said to Bidkar, pick up his body and put it in the vineyard. And Bidkar picked up the warm, bloody, but dead body of Joram, son of Ahab and Jezebel, and put it in the vineyard. And the vineyard they got by shedding Naboth's blood is now stained with our own blood as it flowed in the veins of that son Joram. God's payday train is coming in the station. And all the powers of hell and men can't put on their brakes to put out the steam. When Jezebel heard it was Jehu, she tied her head, whatever that means. Painted her face, put in her earrings and a necklace and a bracelet and a silken clothes. When Jehu drove in the gate, she looked out from the high upstairs window of the palace. And in her disdain, she said to Jehu, the new king, had Zimri peace who slew his master? And Jehu, looking up at that painted viper of the nation, said, Who is on my side? Who? And he saw some eunuchs at another high window, and he said, Take her and throw her down. These men ran and put their strong men's fingers in a soft woman's flesh, picked her up, tired head and all, painted face and all, jewelries and circumstances and all, and pitched out the window, and down she came and hit the street, and her body broke in voice, and some of her blood dashed on the legs of Jehu's horses and some on the walls of the town. And Jehu drove his horses and chair over her. I think he might, might have stopped and looked at her, hissing like a serpent in the fire in a death agonist. 
And he went away to eat. I think he went in the chandelier dining room where Ahab and Jezebel eating so many times. But while he's eating, he suddenly stopped and said to the soldiers, Go out there and get that cursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. These soldiers went out to pick up a butt and bear it. They got out on the street. They were greeted by these yellow-eyed, lousy, mangy, dirty, hungry dogs in the back alleys and the countryside. And they had eaten her, all except her feet, her head, and her hands. God Almighty so took to the lousy, dirty dogs, despised the brains that conceived the prod that took Naboth's life. God Almighty so took to the lousy, dirty, hungry dogs, despised the feet and had walked in Baal's pagan courts and then in Naboth's vineyard. God Almighty saw to the lousy, dirty, hungry dogs, despise the hands that wrote the prop that took Naboth's life. These men looked at those dogs, standing there with their stomachs swollen over their queen's flesh. They went back to their new king in the dining room. He said, we went to bury her, sir. Well, what about it? The dogs had eaten her. All except her feet, her head, and her hands. And Jehu said this is the word of the Lord, spoken by Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Someday the dogs will eat Jezebel, for the ramparts of Jezreel. God said it, and it was done. I see Ahab dead on the chat rim three years after God passed judgment sentence upon him. I see Jezebel eating of the dogs 20 years after God passed judgment sentence upon him. I say, Sometimes the judgments of God have leaden heels and travel slowly. They always have iron hands and they crush completely. I see Ahab dead on the chad rim, Jezebel eating the dogs, and I say, Oh, Ahab, oh, Jezebel, oh, hadst thou hearkened to the commandments of God, then had thy peace been like a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea, and thine eternity a blessed one with the hosts of heaven. Payday someday. Now, let me ask you a question. Be real serious with God and yourself while I ask it. If right where you sit or stand, you suddenly became a dead man, a dead woman, would yours be the sinner's payday and the sinner's hell beyond it? Or the Christian's payday and the Christian hell beyond it? Be one or the other. Depending on what you have done or have done or do do with the Lord Jesus Christ. If right where you sit, you knew in a half minute you'd be dead, could you say it's well with my soul? Please tonight, make the decision to stand the test of the sudden death, the test of the judgment hour. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.